So, uh, look, as, as both of you know, I, you know, I, I almost uh, like incidentally, it struck me as as something I should make a, a quick LinkedIn post about. I was at ABAI uh, and I was having a conversation with a colleague I'd run into and we were just talking life and in all things. And uh, this issue of non-competes came up and this wasn't the first time that it had come up. It, it comes up often, like yeah. it just in the natural course of, of, of doing business as a behavior analyst. And it just struck me as like, well, you know what? Like I keep running into these BCBAs who have these restrictive non-competes. And in many cases, they didn't even know that they had the non-compete. And so mm-hmm. I was like, okay, I'm just going to, I'm going to post, I'm going to post this, this, uh, this, this, co- this commentary essentially on what was happening. And it got, yeah. it got interesting engagement. And so that's how you and I uh, met Chris. Like what a, mm-hmm. what a beautiful collision that we had just spontaneous. Incidentally, we met that way. And here we are yeah. a couple of weeks later talking about non-competes. So uh, that's how mm-hmm. this all happened. But um, I'd love to just chat with you all about your article. Thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah. And I read it. It was incredibly helpful, but uh, I'll kind of, I'll let you all, uh, you know, guide the conversation a bit in terms of how you came to this point where you wrote an article about non-competes uh, and and what we can do today as, as behavior analysts to uh, potentially move in the direction that we want to. Well, yeah, I mean, it was sort of like you're describing, it was something that you know, it wasn't um, like when I finished my master's program, that was my main um, area of interest. It was something that I think, like you mentioned, a lot of folks only really um, pick up on or or find out about when it really affects them or folks that they know. So it was something that um, there was an article before this where I kind of, uh, with some other researchers, looked at the uh, people's opinions on them and you know, it just, um, it was interesting. Like you said, just the response that we got, we got a lot of emails, a lot of um, comments and things like that, just because it was, I, I don't think we knew, because uh, I think both articles, there was about 30%, 33% of folks had reported having one. It wasn't clear how prevalent it was. Like you said, it's something that people don't really talk about. So after we did the first, well, after me and some some colleagues did the first one and looked at people's opinions. The next question was like, okay, well, what actually are these things doing? Because you might have them and they might, you know, be three miles for a, two months or something like that, or they could not be like that. And so I think we, to really help flesh out what the first article about people's opinions really showed, we needed to really try to assess, you know, actually what, if any impact that they were having on practitioners. So that's, um, the second one, this latest one, kind of followed up naturally from the first, trying to see what impact they actually have. So, and you know, to add, uh, you know, Chris. So this is really Chris's brainchild, and, and he had brought me along or asked me to contribute, which I'm really grateful for. But, but you know, for me, it's been something that has come up with advising students, you know, in my role as a faculty member here is to help my students be successful. And also Michigan State University is a land grant institution. So we're here to serve uh, the people of the state of Michigan as part of our part of our mission. And so I was seeing these non-competes in some of the initial offers that my students were getting. And I was like, this isn't helpful for anybody, uh, especially the state or, or the, you know, my student or you know, other people as well. And so we started, you know, working with the potential employers to get those out, but it 
became kind of a constant issue in one of those soapbox things that, that I've been, um, you had the pleasure to write about a little bit over the years. And, and again, in this mm-hmm. case, really the pleasure to be able to collaborate with uh, Chris on. Yeah, you know, in, in that LinkedIn post, I, I made it relatively clear that I wanted to distinguish between those that have non-competes because they transacted in some way. So they're going to be BCBAs that perhaps um, raised capital or sold their companies. And that's not what I'm referring to here. I'm referring to your everyday BCBA who maybe this is their first role as a behavior analyst in an organization or or, or not. But they're, they're, they're your everyday BCBA who's practicing and they, they work for an organization and then they somehow have this non-compete. And I'm not kidding. These non-competes can be incredibly restrictive. You know this. So I was talking with somebody at ABAI who was like, she, she didn't love her job. This is, I mean, this is just, it's crazy to me. She doesn't love her job. But so I was like, well, you know, what's, what's keeping you from just finding a job that's like more aligned with your values and that's going to put you in this beautiful environment where you can thrive and, 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 and flourish. She's like, well, I've got this non-compete. I was like, well, tell me, tell me about this non-compete. And it's like a 50 mile non-compete. So she would have to uproot her family, which by the way, isn't easy when you have kids, you know, it's like, oh, no problem. Let me just move across the, the world. Basically. Yeah. It's like, who's going to do that? Yeah. It's just, it's, it's incredibly negligent. And so uh, for, for, for employers, I think, to, to do these things. Now, there might be exceptions to this. And I don't want to make this like global statement and, and, uh-huh. and, uh, and isolate anyone. But it's like, it just seems like it's incredibly restrictive. And so then I post this thing and then we got to meet. So again, I think this is a really amazing kind of collision. And uh, it's exciting that we can, we can talk more about, about this. But um, you know, w- one thing I would love to talk to y'all about is like what you learned through this process. Like, obviously you, 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 you published your, your article, which is really helpful, but like, what else did you learn that's not in the article that would be helpful for people listening? Well, I, I think one of the biggest things, I guess a mark of any good research is that it usually leads to more questions than, than what you originally answer. So I, I found, you know, Matt mentioned the word soapbox, and I feel like a lot of times it's like this this area that I've kind of become interested in, and, and we initially researched it because Matt did a paper on how to identify ethical organizations, and they mentioned non-competes in there, and I was like, well, that's maybe someone should actually get into this. So it's it's kind of nice how this is all kind of circled around, but just like you, you said, um, I mean, I had I just learned a lot of things. One thing that I learned was that opinions on this are pretty strong. Um, you know, I had some interesting feedback given to me in the survey from respondents in free type text box. I had to throw their data out because it wasn't the question that I asked, but I, you know, was given some feedback. And I think one of the, you know, things we actually put in the paper too, and that's why there's a section on using like a trimmed mean to find the, the averages because some of the the numbers that were given were so shocking, I guess would be the right word. I had somebody write and they answered, yeah, I have a non-compete. And I, the follow-up question is like, well, how far? And they wrote uh, the entire earth. The world. I'm, not, I'm not kidding. They put in, they literally, they made it very clear. Um, and that's not the first time I've heard that comment. And so it was just, I guess that was some of the stuff that we, um, one of the things that I learned was that, you know, there are folks that are, they're using them and they're using, they're being used in a responsible way. Like you mentioned, this is, these articles are never meant to be a, 
you know, a discussion or commentary necessarily on business people's, you know, or owners' rights or prerogatives and things like that. It's more about the, the responsibility of how they're supposed to be done. You know, I know, like you said, 50 miles. I know of many that are 75 and 100. A couple of folks answered beyond that in ours. And um, I mean, I just think, like you said, it, there's a line, just the gray area between balancing business interests and the rights of consumers to have available services. I mean, it's tough in the middle, you know, 15, 20 miles, six months, nine months. But then you get into this other area where it's like a year, two years, 100 miles, 125. And it's like, okay, I don't know where the the solid line is, but I know that this is beyond it. So that was kind of the difficult part, I guess, or, or what we learned is that some folks do use them in, in a way that seems more, I guess, just on anecdotally, okay, if you will. And then other ones, it's clearly like, hmm, that's... Um, that's a long distance, you know, or that's a long time. So, I mean, that's one of the things. And then also, you know, learning that folks, a lot of folks didn't know they had them. Some folks weren't really sure what they were. I mean, that was some new data we got. Um, and then some folks thought that they were agree. They, they thought the job offer was acceptable with it. So, like I said, it was just interesting to get more information on the whole of, I guess, how they're utilized in, in the field. Because some folks seemed okay with them, which is, is you know, good. If, if uh, owner and an employee make an agreement, like you said, or there's some involvement with capital or trade secrets and stuff like that, um, that's one, you know, one thing. So that's one of the things I learned, I guess, is just not only their prevalence, but the broad differences in how they're used. And, and to piggyback off of that, and, and you know, I um... – you know, I appreciate the nuance or the, you know, the conditions under which something like this may be acceptable. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know if I would ever sign one. I probably, I don't know if I'd ever be in a position to sign one, you know, given, given, you know, my career path, but, you know, certainly for entry level, you know, behavior analysts, I would never advise anybody um, to sign one. And I'd always advise for them to, to get removed. But, you know, back to the point the, or the question, you know, one of the things for me that I think I learned and I want to expand upon this more, if I can get my act together this summer and actually write, is <laughs> this idea about the people who are affected by our decisions that are beyond just uh, the, the parties, you know, in the contract. So the, the owner and perhaps, yeah, you know, the behavior analyst. And, and in, the, in the discussion, we talk about this a little bit about how the community in the case of the non-competes, are stakeholders in the business owner's decision to use them and enforce them because you know, we know that they are bad for growth, they're bad for the economy. And so, you know, when you make those choices, you're affecting, you know, indirectly, but to some degree, the people who live in that community. And another thing that you are doing is you are potentially restricting access to services you know, living in the state of Michigan, I know this is, you know, the case elsewhere where there are so many people on wait lists waiting to get services. And so when you're making a decision, your contractual decision to mm-hmm. limit availability of service, you that you're you're playing mm-hmm. with people's access. And so the, the stakeholders mm-hmm. in that decision are, are well beyond the uh, business business owner and the person who's signing. Mm-hmm. 
that's yeah, that's definitely. my greatest concern. That is my greatest concern, Matt. Is that I have met and and so what's interesting is your article. It was it it it, it almost brilliantly characterized the everyday experiences of those that are practicing, which is, which is amazing, right? Like there was so much alignment between, you know, I make this, this LinkedIn post, Chris shares the article and, and, and I had read the article, but, but it's like, we were, it's like our experiences were, were so aligned, which, mm. which concerns me, right? So you right. meet BCBAs that, uh, that basically say, oh, I'm not practicing right now. I've left the field entirely. I have met BCBAs recently who are doing other things because they cannot practice in Correct. their in their local yeah. in their local communities. And by yeah. the way, these local communities have such a, an imbalance between uh, supply and demand. There are not enough BCBAs to serve the the, the learners in this area, and so mm -hmm. it's it's a real concern. And uh, we talk about the nuance of these non-competes, right? Like there's a point at which they become very inappropriate, you know, the, the number yeah. of years, the distance. So we get all that. But you mentioned in your article, too, that there are alternatives to uh, yeah. there are alternatives to the non-compete that can meet the needs of the organization to where there's more balance. Right. So we talk yeah. about the non-solicitation. We talk about the non-disclosure. Like those are very appropriate agreements yeah. to put in yeah. a, to put in an employment paperwork. However, you know, restricting like you're, you're playing with Matt, you make a good point. You're playing with uh, fire at this point when you're when you're taking BCBAs who are valuable to 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 the industry right now, you're taking them out of practice and you're saying, go do something else for 12 months because, you know, you're not allowed to work in this community or by the way, move across the country, which again, like that's just not an easy thing for people to pull off or hire an attorney. Yeah. Because all of us have several thousand dollars sitting in our bank accounts, you know, to, 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 to hire a lawyer to, mm -hmm. to argue with, you know, our previous employer. So it's just, it's a, it's a deep concern. Um, and I'm really glad mm -hmm. that y'all wrote the article because I think it, it addresses something that's really important. Yeah, no, I, I think that that's, you know, that's kind of what the main point of it was to see how it affects consumers. I mean, it's, it's interesting with behavior analysts, you know, we, we, their uh, opinions and, and what they report. And that's sort of like Matt said, this missing link uh, of this is really what is the, the viewpoint of a consumer, like if consumers would know, like, Hey, if it was open, you know, Hey, this organization, just so you know, we utilize this, you know, or this happens. I just would, it would be very interesting if that transparency was there, what consumers would think about it, you know? And, and, and I think the way, way in which it, it is found out by consumers is the, in the way in which we don't want when, you know, it's like, Oh, well, Hey, we're moving, you know, 20 minutes away, can we still work with you? And then a behavior analyst has this odd position where, because many of these clauses, they, some of them might have non-disclosure agreements, like you said, the business might have a general non-disclosure agreement, which again is, is appropriate if they have partnerships and this and that, to some extent it might be. So, you know, if you have that, you know, it kind of leaves you in a spot where you just have to sit there and say, nah, no, I can't. Why? Well, I just, you know, I just can't. It's very, it puts the practitioner in a very, um, odd place. But like you said, if you, you look at these contracts and essentially how they function, um, there's an alternative that serves the same purpose to prevent disclosure of trade secrets, which ABA is not one. And that's something that we discussed in the first article. If you can go buy 15 different books on it um, and telling you how to do it and this and that and hundreds of thousands of articles, 
um, it's not a trade secret. Business practices maybe, but but not the science itself. Um, and then the non-solicitation, which even ethically, you know, you're not, if you leave an organization, you shouldn't be, you know, reaching out to folks that you previously worked with if you don't have an established, you know, relationship. I mean, there's avenues to very clearly prevent, um, you know, folks doing those things. Then what really does the non-compete add? It's just, you can't work. It does the same things, but it just adds this component that, and beyond those two things, you're not going to work for anyone at all. You know, and then that's kind of the question that we're looking at is, you know, what, what is the real purpose of that? You know, what does it do beyond the other two things? And like Matt said, uh, it doesn't really, when you look about it, it's not a list of great things, you know, that come to mind, you know, I'm not being able to work for a year within 75 miles. I don't know who benefits from that, you know, and I, I don't think there, I can't think of anyone. And like you mentioned earlier, um, areas with the highest needs where there's more competitors, more businesses, uh, presumably for higher need, bigger cities, they're the more, or especially, you know, they're going to be more likely to use them. So the places with the higher need, most facilities are going to have, there's a chance you'd have more behavior analysts with contracts because there's more agencies. And and what happens when everyone has one? And, you, you know, I just, like, I'm not a, I don't have an MBA, but I, I don't know what is that going to do to worker mobility? What's that going to do? I, I, I don't know. That's concerning. And to, to kind of, you know, to, to address the, the non-solicitation one, because I think, I think this too is, I think that there's some nuance maybe that could be lost with some, some owners here as mm-hmm. well. And I think about, you know, mm-hmm. our right, and you go and look back at the Belmont report, it spells out this idea of our, mm-hmm. of our rights to be able to, to make decisions about our healthcare and, and, uh, um, you know, choose our provider. And so let, let's say that my uh, doctor leaves the practice that she's working for and goes to work for a different practice. Mm-hmm. You bet I'm going to want to go and follow her mm-hmm. and still see her because we've got a relationship and I, I trust her. And I think that she's been excellent. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's provided me with excellent mm-hmm. care. And you know, she might not actively solicit me to come over, but I ought to be able to if in, you know, the insurance funding is going to sure. be a whole other issue. But so long as that all pans out, mm-hmm. nobody should be, in, you know, um, in any sort of trouble or issue because of that. Now, if she's actively soliciting, it obviously becomes more problematic. But so like that, that there is, a, mm-hmm. I think, a nuance too. it's like if you leave and the clients want to go with you because you're good at your job. Um, I don't just, again, personally, my perspective as an academic, that should be, you know, that's again, the clients being able to make decisions about the healthcare that, that they receive. Yeah. And I mean, those kind of just, I think I wrote a little bit about it with, um, in the first paper we did, you know, when you build rapport with a family, therapeutic rapport, especially, you know, with individuals with developmental delays who are, who are on the autism spectrum, it takes a long time to develop rapport and figure out all the unique and great, you know, idiosyncrasies that some of the kiddos come with and all their strengths and things they need to work on. It's not something that you can just figure out in like a five minute talk. You know, it's something that is built over time. The, the science that we use is intensive and it, it, it we 
the kids change and the young adults, whoever gets the service, they change, can change quickly. And it, it just, once you work with a client and you get uh, an idea on their needs and their strengths, and, and you all kind of get in that symbiotic relationship, it's not something that you can just pop someone else in and, and it's the same. There's effects, even if someone stays at a clinic, you know, it's not the case. I mean, BCBAs have a level of certification and experience, but that, um, that, um, those soft skills, I guess that we're start. I've seen a couple articles about them, rapport building and service and stuff that is, you know, that's an invaluable kind of thing, comfortability, understanding, knowing, uh, even cultural sensitivities for some of the clients you work with. That's not something that you can just pop someone else in. If I leave and it's like, Oh, well, it's tomato, tomato. It's not. And then, you know, we are, we know very well in the recent past and, the, the general public's you know view of the field at some times and I, I those kind of exchanges or you know just having somebody popped in or even like I mentioned earlier like oh well I can't work or well I can't tell you where I'm going to work well why not well I just can't well that makes me kind of look like a word I probably can't say on this this cast here you know it doesn't make me look like a caring individual you know so yeah it's it's I guess going back to one of your previous questions things I learned like these were questions that came up like after we got more responses, it's like, wow, you know, what, what is the impact if 30% of people have this and this many percent said they couldn't continue to see clients? What were those conversations like, you know, if the average caseload is 10 or 11 and 30, I mean, how many folks, you know, what is this contributing to this view of our, our field? What's it like in other fields? So those were a lot of things that popped in my mind after, you know, looking over this data. Yeah. It seems like the I'm glad y'all y'all raised the issue of learners. Like what what happens with those families that are receiving services? Are they are they able to follow their BCBA who they have rapport with? And mm-hmm. this this leads me back to the point that individuals should have choices, right? Like mm-hmm. the BCBA should have a choice as to where mm-hmm. they want to work. If that environment that they're working is no longer aligned with their values or meeting their needs or expectations, they should have the, the ability to go elsewhere, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but these non-competes are, are essentially, you know, very coercive or they can be very co- coercive where the, the BCBAs could potentially feel just enslaved. Like, well, and, and that's a strong word, but like it feels mm-hmm. that way, right? Where they're just bound, like they, mm-hmm. they have no options. And so you would certainly like there's the other side of that is also the families like and mm-hmm. and if the families then are, you know, are essentially uh, in this position where they're not able to to work with the people that they have rapport with. And it's 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 similar in a sense to the BCBA who's having to stay because of because of their agreements. And I think the I think what we're calling people to. And again, there might be instances in which these are appropriate practices and they're balanced and they're reasonable. So again, like, you know, in the spirit of, of uh, collaboration and assuming the best in, in, in everyone, uh, I, you know, I want to make that comment. And I know like I'll, I'll make a confession. The very first organization that I was a part of, we had a non-compete and, um, but I, but I did it because my attorney told me it was something that you just put in the employment agreements, right? Yes. If I were to make a conscious decision today, 
I'd say, no, let's not have like, there's just no need for this. Right. And, and by the way, as a business, as, as, as a founder kind of entrepreneur, I would never, I probably would never enforce a non-compete because it just seems like a really unloving thing to do. Um, mm. my, my thought is let's, let's build the environment where people thrive and flourish. And by the way, if, if this environment isn't for you, then by all means, go somewhere that, that you're going you're gonna to absolutely crush it as a clinician. So I think that we need to have that flexibility uh, as, as clinicians. And that's why I think, again, coming back to, coming back to y'all's work, I think it's really valuable that you're, you're probably with this, with this article, you're probably causing people to just uh, stop for a moment and think mm-hmm. through their practices, whether you're a business owner and you have these agreements in your employment contracts or whether you're you're a BCBA who maybe doesn't even know if you have a non-compete. Um, mm-hmm. I think that these are this your 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 work is is potentially sparking good dialogue that we probably needed to have as a field. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's really the goal is to spark dialogue. I mean, Matt had a great suggestion when we were doing this. Uh, you know, why don't we add a table of you know, questions or things that you should ask when you're going, you know, through contract negotiations. And I think, yeah, and I'm hoping that that is something that folks can, um, you know, take away from that, uh, you know, from this, just to be more cognizant of them. Because, you know, as you were kind enough to, you know, admit yourself, you know, and there was, I think, about 8% of people, seven and a half or something in our survey said, oh, yeah, it was just a legal suggestion when I started it. And it's just such a complex issue. So a lawyer who's got experience in business and contract law, they're like, oh, you know, 100%, this makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. But are they clinicians? No. Are lawyers allowed themselves to enter into these agreements? I don't think so. I think there's some, it's very, it's a very complex and interesting um, kind of issue, you know, and um yeah. And the lawyers probably aren't looking at the ethical code. They're not, you know, mm-hmm. it's it's like you're looking at one, you're, you're, you're a, let's say you're an employment attorney. You, mm-hmm. you have, you know, you have a, a set of experiences and, and practices that, that allow you to make recommendations. But when you're advising, like I know that the, the uh, attorneys I've engaged in the past, they haven't necessarily taken the time to understand like the, the environment with which I, I, I work, right? Like they don't understand, they, they didn't necessarily understand, uh, that we have, you know, uh, 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 ethical obligations as behavior analysts. Like they didn't understand the whole picture. They're just like, Oh yeah, you should use these things as part of your employment contract or agreement. Mm -hmm. So, um, I can certainly appreciate that many BCBAs who, uh, are leaders in organizations, they may not even realize that these are in that, you know, in their employment agreements that they're having their staff sign. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, and one of the things, at least, you know, for me in, in, in my work is, is I've, you know, I understand that there's going to be some things that, you know, I may recommend. And, and I know there's criticism of academics and, you know, sort of lacking perspective of the real world. And, and, you know, I appreciate your comment about this speaking to, you know, to practice because, you know, it's something that, that I try really hard to be able to do in my work. And I know Chris is really devoted to that as well. It's that, you know, I don't, I don't really, if, if I upset somebody, um, I, I honestly, I don't care. It's so long as I get the facts right. Mm-hmm. And if somebody disagrees with me, mm-hmm. that's fine with me. I, you know, I just want to get the facts right. And so the the thought here is that with whatever decision somebody makes, that they at least have the information mm-hmm. and they at least understand, okay, 
if I do this and I decide to enforce it, here's what mm. I could be doing. Here's what I could be doing to the person. Here's what I could be doing indirectly, at least to the mm. economy. Here's what I could be doing uh, with regard to restricting, you know, service access. You know, just just so that way they just know. Versus, okay, yeah, you're right. Mm. I got this legal advice. Good. I'm going to make a choice, but not have all of the information. You know, that informs the. Uh, uh, the potential like outcomes or actions or things that might happen as a result of that choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's a, a really good way to put it. Just like, you know, really, I mean, there are States we wrote about it that um, uh, uniquely have some States don't allow them at all or are very restrictive with them. Some States, I think uh, two, I'm not sure off the top of my head with where, which ones they are. They've restricted these four practitioners of certain kinds of medical professions of which at least psychologists, I believe was one. So there are, of course, it's, you know, two or three out of 50, but there are some, it's become clear in some states to the point that has been passed through the legislator that legislature that they can't, this isn't acceptable. And it, it either takes the form of like a law saying they shouldn't be used or like the ethics of the the practitioner says you should not sign a contract that will restrict your ability to practice in the future. So it's, it's, it's been discussed obviously in certain pockets with certain professions. Um, It's just no one had ever had that discussion in the field. So I think like Matt in our field, so for folks to make appropriate decisions, to be able to evaluate these things, be aware of them. I mean, that was really the goal. Um, you know, because I think as um, more and more um, private equity firms, you know, if they, you know, we know that there are large chain corporations and things like that. I, I'm a business owner. I get letters every now and then about, you know, somebody, you know, oh, hey, you're looking to sell this or that. The more, my other concern with this is that the more organizations, and those organizations may want to do well, but if they're holding companies and whatnot, they're not clinician run like you said, these sort of default technologies and like, all right, all the clinic directors get this and that. And then here's the, the, the packet of non-compete. I just, you know, it really would bode well, I think, for practitioners to know what to look for and what what to ask and know exactly what can come of these um, contracts, let alone figure out what they're going to, how they're going to make money for a year if they can't work. I mean, that, that we didn't even touch anything like that in the, in the article. Like, uh, I mean, that's a whole, that's a, that's a very open issue. That's, you know, it's significant. We're talking more about clients, but I mean, that is, um, it, yeah, a very clear issue. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one thing I learned early on in my career was, uh, not, not in my career as a behavior analyst, but when I, you know, I, I made my transition to private practice and, and, you know, 10 years ago or so I learned very early on that there's, there's a difference between doing what's legal and mm. doing what's right. Correct. You can, you can do, uh, you could, you could do, you could do what's legal. Yeah, sure. You can have a non-compete agreement and the state of, you know, Texas or whatever is they're not prohibiting your use of non-competes. However, there's that's that that doesn't necessarily matter as much as just doing the right thing. Like, mm-hmm. and what's the right thing to do here? Well, I mm-hmm. would probably argue that you should use alternative practices. Uh, mm-hmm. Non-competes as a practice for BCBAs is probably not all that appropriate. Use non-solicitations. Use non-disclosures, absolutely. 
But, um, but, you know, coming back to like, well, what's the right thing to do? I, I have a hard time justifying that it's, it's right to give a yeah. BCBA non-compete. That would require them to move away from their home and their community and take their families with them. And like, it just doesn't seem like that's an appropriate uh, response mm. to this issue of protecting trade secrets and, you know, making sure our clients aren't leaving, etc. cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. I mean, even, and we wrote about non-disclosures, we wrote about non-solicitation. I mean, there's even, for the businesses that might be very concerned about this and that, I mean... I don't know why you'd need them, but I mean, there are like even non-disparagement agreements, you know, things. I mean, you can have anyone sign a lot of agreements that'll essentially, you know, they might agree to not talk bad, which we're bound by professionalism and VCO and other places also have standards about how to, you know, we should, you know, behave with other accredited organizations and whatnot. But I'm saying there's many safeguards you can take that can pretty much check every box except this last one that's and comma and you don't work at all within this area unless you work here so i mean that's kind of the like you're saying it really begs that question like what does this add uh you know i don't yeah the the answer is not apparent when you ask the question oh rob robbie i want to while you were talking one thing that came up um to my mind and and i recommend recommend this book to you, Chris, or anybody else who's listening is um, it's called Rotten, Why Corporate Misconduct Continues and What to Do About It. And it's by Mark Epstein and Kirk um, Kirk Hansen. And I I had the privilege of hearing Kirk speak when he came out to Michigan State University in the winter for a two-day ethics planning and institute meeting. And it's very... These guys are behavior analysts, but they just uh, talk about things in a very different, you know, in just different way. But it's very systems oriented. And so I, I, I strongly encourage anyone mm-hmm. to, to pick up this book. One of the things that they really you know, nailed home to me was this idea that the, the law is going to be so far behind advancements in technology, advancements in business practices. And it, and it is just never going to be able to get caught up. And so it, that's where mm-hmm. ethics codes are very important. But in places where there is not regulation, such as, you know, at the business level, um, you know, for BCBAs, we have that, you know, to varying degrees. But then with the businesses, it, it takes the, um, you know, the community of, of businesses, the culture, or just, you know, a very s- smart and savvy board or CEO to make sure that these things are right and that the actions are taken. Because these are things that don't result in billable hours, most likely. They take time, they take work, and Mm -hmm. they take effort. And it's so hard sometimes to see or quantify even the outcomes, Mm -hmm. right, of, of of those organizational practices. The, the failure mm-hmm. to do, though, is is so, um, you know, we can quantify those things. And we, you know, we talk about, you know, in, the, in this book, they talk about BP spilling oil. They talk about, you know, these data leaks mm-hmm. and everyone's social security numbers being, being um, you know, thrown out on the dark web. And so, like, those are the, the unintended, you know, the consequences of, of inaction. Um, what are the major consequences mm-hmm. in ABA for lack of regulation? I think, you know, we, we will... Um, whether or not you're for or against that, uh, 
you know, time will tell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I have some, I have some thoughts mm-hmm. on that, but that's a, that's a whole other conversation for another day. But, um, you know, I think, again, it goes on to thinking uh, a little bit more deeply about the, the consequences of our actions beyond that of the, of the business or the owner mm-hmm. and whoever might be signing something. Mm-hmm. If I, if I remember correctly, did y'all cite these authors in the paper? I think I remember seeing the name Epstein. I did. Yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, okay. I do recall. And I, and I think it, in that, um, and it might've very well been in that paragraph, uh, about mm-hmm. the, the, the stakeholder, um, being in, in decisions being more than, um, just the business owner and the, the behavior analyst. And I also cited another book by a woman named Susan Leotard, I think is how I, um, her last name is pronounced. And I, I recommend that one too. Both mm-hmm. of those books I read over the winter and I love them so much. I uh, incorporated them in the ethics class that I taught uh, this spring. I can confirm they're both in there. Yeah, they're both referenced. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. I remember seeing those names. You know, I, I love that you make the point that the, the law is always going to be behind uh, practices. And I think that we have this unique opportunity. Uh, I, we find ourselves in this cultural moment where with good information, with the dissemination of, of, of good information, as you said, here's the facts. This is the fact pattern. I think that we can make tremendous change, uh, which is why I wanted to interview y'all, because I suspect, man, how, how rad would that be? If even just one organization was like, nah, we're dropping our non-competes. We're gonna we're committed to moving in a different direction instead of requiring BCBAs to work here because they're bound by these agreements. We're gonna put all of our effort and all of our energy, we're gonna pivot to just building a baller environment where people wanna work. Mm-hmm. Like how how amazing would that be? So I think we have that 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 ability now to just just get good information out there and let mm-hmm. people make and let people make their decisions like you have a yeah. choice here as an organization if if I were listening to this podcast right now I'd be like do I have non-compete agreements in my employment contract mm-hmm. I would go I would look and if I did I'd drop them and I'd send a memo to my staff saying Hey, by the way, we're dropping these non-competes because we just feel like um, we have a different perspective now. Uh, perhaps we were unaware when we put these in the agreements and we're going to move a different direction. We're committed to doing everything we can to build an environment where you want to work. Here's a survey. Tell us how to do better. Whatever it yeah. is. like that's, sure. that's the direction I want us to move as a field, right? I think it'll be better for us. And I think that it'll leave our name a little less untarnished. Uh, mm-hmm. which, which is important given where we find ourselves today with uh, that's again, that's another, that's another conversation for another day, yeah. but um, that, that, that's my hope in doing this, you know, con- having this conversation with y'all. Mm-hmm. I mean, definitely for me, I mean, one of the, the, it was a very odd experience because I, I wrote or was on the team that wrote the first article um, Dr. Stephen Flora was on it. My wife was an, another one of the the authors. She's a behavior analyst too. So we all, you know, knew each other. We taught together and, um, you know, did that first one. Was then coming into an organization after that and then taking a leadership role eventually up to like uh, ownership and uh, part ownership and operations officer. Um, I definitely what you know wrote the article before i went into this position and then there were times when i was able to if you will tact you know pick out like i can see why 
some this situation why somebody really might want this because it is difficult to develop a, a it's a lot of work to develop a survey with QR codes so people can have access to them so that I just don't say I have a token survey up in the cloud somewhere put them all over the building so people can snap them and get feedback how do we get upstream feedback how do we do this it is a lot of work it takes a lot of time it's not billable for a behavior analyst or an owner to do um, and I'm not saying that that's the biggest impact, but for businesses to continue, I mean, they do have to, you know, pay their bills and make a profit. It does take a lot of work. Like you, you, you mentioned to build a baller environment to do these things. It is a lot of work to make it to where folks want to stay, whether it's reinforcement systems, um, and who's going to monitor the reinforcement system. I, we want to expand PTO. Who's going to track the PTO? Um, you know, and, and so for me, you know, it was very interesting to come into this afterwards. And like, I can see, I don't want to say see the appeal, but I can see where somebody just thinking from like response effort, where it's like all this stuff, I have to hire somebody to monitor culture, do this and that. Well, what if I just did this? And then it kind of, it's interesting to think about, it, it let me know, and at, a, at no point were these articles ever meant, like I said earlier, to be a knock on ownership or anything like that. The contingencies that operate on the owners versus the clinicians are very different. And that was something that I learned when I did this. And I think it made me um, understand, I, I never really harbored anger towards folks that, that did this or any, there wasn't angry or anything, but it let me take a better perspective on really the the issue at hand and that was even before gas was eight dollars a gallon and you know people um you know just the the economic conditions that we're in now that also have a bearing on this um finding staff we're in what they call now the great recession you know um i think the it's a poignant time to be talking about this kind of stuff, but it, I did experience it. Boy, this is a lot of work. Like Matt mentions to do systems analysis. Well, there's no feedback coming from the BT. Okay. Who's going to do this? Who's going to put the, right, who's going to monitor it? If it's a, someone with billables, what are they going to, it's a lot of work to do that. And, and um, yeah, I, I think that that is something that I definitely came to appreciate. Yeah. Response effort is high to build uh, an mm -hmm. organizational culture where people want to be right. But mm -hmm. I would also argue that uh, if you take this, if, if you take the approach that you're going to continuously improve things day by day, it can be paralyzing. Like you're talking, you're mm -hmm. talking this like paramount, massive mountain to climb where you're like, well, how do I, you know, how do I go from where I am today to an organizational culture and environment where people want to uh, commit their careers to. And I get that. That's a, that's, that's, it's a lot of work. You are, mm -hmm. you're very, um, there's a lot of wisdom in saying what you said. Um, day by day, one decision mm -hmm. after the next. And, and the, the aggregate of, of all of these really good decisions down the road is, is going to be something that's beautiful where again, people do mm -hmm. want to work and it's, uh, but, but I absolutely agree that it's not easy um, but I'll also say that as the one who's had to make those types of decisions and build that type mm -hmm. of environment, um, I also know that it's more reinforcing for me. Like this is a better, like 
it's a better place for me to work too. So yeah, there are certain things that are maybe a lot better for your staff than they are for, for mm-hmm. ownership or whatever. And that, that always happens because cool. you're right. The contingencies are different. However, um, I also know that like investing in organizational culture has always paid off, not just for the team, but for, for mm-hmm. us, like it makes my job way better. And like, I love mm-hmm. that I, when I see my staff, like we're all super excited to see one another. Um, mm-hmm. And so like it, it's, it's, there's something really special and unique about putting in the work uh, mm-hmm. and, and being diligent about, about doing it because it, it makes the environment better for, for ownership also. I mean, I'm sure there's numerous benefits from retention sure. to, you know, uh, 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 patient persistence, any number mm-hmm. of things you could, you could, you could quantify that, uh, mm-hmm. that would demonstrate that an investment in organizational culture is better for everyone. Yeah, I agree. Definitely. Yeah. If only there was a science to, to, to guide our, uh, our yeah. analysis and implementation of that. If, yeah. if only, if only. You have to write, write something up about that at some point. That's, that, that's right. That's right. Um, sweet. A- anything else y'all want to talk about while we're, while we're hanging out? I want to be respectful of your time. I, I talk to you all day, but you probably have, uh-huh. uh, have things to do. And well, I think one thing that the came that I, we, I really wanted to attend to with this neck, this survey now that I didn't. And my other, the other folks who are on me with that paper, we didn't address was RBTs signing non-competes. So we have been very um, under like my previous statement about understanding the content, my, my uh, story about learning about all these great contingencies and how owners and, you know, trying to understand um, just as, as um, understanding uh, I was there, I'm going to be as, as blunt as possible here. There's no situation under which I think an RBT who can't do anything on their own who's making an hourly rate, many of which who probably don't have full benefits and whatnot, there's no reason why they should have a non-compete clause. So that's, um, I'm purposely just going to leave it there. If Matt wants to elaborate, um, I just don't think there's really any discussion about it beyond that. Yeah. You know, when, when Chris sent me the paper draft and the data, Mm-hmm. And, you know, asked for my thoughts and input. That was the first thing that, mm-hmm. that really stuck out to me. And I, you know, I thought, am I, am I hallucinating? Like, is this, is this really mm-hmm. happening? Um, that like, I would never mm-hmm. had thought in, in a million years. And I, mm-hmm. I, I just, um, you know, so I echo those thoughts and, and I've, you know, I've been on the record before, um, you know, talking about how I think, you know, that is a pretty selfish thing to, to, to put these in, uh, non-competes in clauses or non-competes in contracts, you know, it's the majority of the time as we're talking about, but you want to talk about selfish and only thinking about oneself, mm-hmm. like, you know, to put, to put an RBT um, to subject them to something like that. It's, it's, it's pretty, pretty wild and probably is one of the most, um, mm-hmm. outlandish things that I've heard about the practice, uh, you know, in my, in my career that mm-hmm. I can think of, um, if not the most. And so I just, I just hope that there's, uh, you know, we rethink how we use these contractual tools, mm-hmm. but, 
eliminate some practices mm-hmm. altogether and then that would be one i would i would hope that we can you know stop with <laughs> please yeah i mean even just thinking about the unique service delivery system that 90 percent of aba is we've talked a lot about um and this is why i want to mention it because you know the technicians that do the direct service I mean, they're the backbone on which this service is delivered. So as much as we've talked about BCBAs, you know, um, that's the a term that comes to mind when you're talking about ABA, you know, ABA and BCBA, they're almost like, you know, these terms that just go hand in hand now. Um, really, probably, if I had to venture a guess, the, the bigger impact is going to be, if not as big, if not worse, is, you know, RBTs not being able to work. We've had, I'm not going to get into the debate about it, but I know Justin Leaf and some of his colleagues discussed even the RBT requirements, you know, being minimal in that, you know, what we have. So for those folks who are in places who I guess would have the experience, the um, career goals to be looking somewhere else, you're, it's going to, my concern is that it's going to essentially target those BTs that are going to be putting in the time, maybe looking at graduate programs versus the ones who are like, yeah, I'll go work somewhere else. I don't, you know, that's fine. I, I'm not, that's okay. Maybe this wasn't for me. It almost is the way these things work. It by default is going to only affect those folks who are invested enough to be trying to better themselves, go somewhere else, look for other opportunities. Um, and that is really concerning. You know, the prevalence of autism, we were lucky enough that that came out right before this paper went in so we could update to make it clear again that it's increased again and the demand is higher again than what it was before. Um, So it's just looking at how the BTs who actually direct these services, because I can write 20 treatment plans, but if nobody's there, I can only implement one, you know, and um, yeah, very concerning with with rbt's having reporting about the same amount you know yeah yeah well and i imagine that 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 makes sense to me because i i imagine in many cases the employment agreements are consistent across all employees so if your bcba is going to have a non-compete they're probably going to also have a non-compete for your rbt's because they're in many cases signing the same types of agreements so that absolutely makes sense and uh and i i think that i think that the 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 paper really gets, I think, people like me thinking through some of the unintended consequences of having these types of agreements, right? Like if you hadn't thought about it before, you're going to think about it now. Um, And the point that you just made, Chris, is really, it's like, man, how spot on is that? Like it's, these practices are targeting the the RBTs who are like invested, who would be willing to go elsewhere to continue their, you know, to continue on their career paths towards becoming BCBA. So like it, it very, uh, very much targets them in a way that's really detrimental to, to our practice, to, to service delivery in, in ABA. Like we need staff, we need staff more than ever. And so, uh, by, by, by writing the paper and us having this conversation, I think that it's going to hopefully cause people to, to rethink, how they're using these types of agreements and uh, to reconsider to reconsider their organizational practices to make to make change moving in a direction that's much more um, I don't know appropriate and uh, yeah appropriate mm-hmm. for for the staff that that we're employing. Yeah, yeah. You know what? One thing too. I mean, for for people looking for jobs, 
you, know, you talk about change and changing culture. Like it's, it's, you know, the market is hot for, for people who want to be RBTs, BC, ABAs, BCBAs. And it's, you know, it's an opportunity for them to, you know, speak with their choices and go and select organizations mm-hmm. that, that are doing a good job and that do not have these things. And so, you know, I'm hoping that, you know, through this process or through this information, we can kind of select out some of these bad practices or get people to say, hey, if I even want to hire, mm-hmm. um, I've got um, I've got to make some changes because, I mean, you know, for my students, there are more jobs job offers than they could shake a stick at and, and they can have their pick. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a nice opportunity right now. It's a great opportunity mm-hmm. for them, but also to help, you know, businesses really want to put their money where their mouth is and they say they're a great mm-hmm. place to work. Then you have to act like mm-hmm. it, you know, through and through. Yeah. Yeah. What it's going to, it's a great time for some cultural selection. I mean, if we know this and it's like, yeah, you know, it's a, like Matt said, a good time where, you know, as a culture, as, a, as an applied science, where maybe it is the appropriate time where folks, you know, no, I'm not, you know, there's plenty of job offers where I can have the same salary, this and that. And how, you know, me and Matt, I'd even messaged him about like um, delay discounting and things like that. How much would somebody have to pay you to really make it worth your while, you know, to that? To, because a lot of folks, very few people reported that they were given extra compensation. I mean, I had, after we wrote the first paper, it was interesting that folks like would email me. It was very odd, like the culture with this, like they would send me letters to the university I worked at with names blacked out and this and that of example contracts. It was just so odd how much permeating under the surface, I guess people were upset or how much of an issue this was and why I I wanted to and was lucky enough to have Matt join up for this second article, you know, being offered 250 bucks to sign away a year of work you make $75,000, you know, and with benefits and this and that, you know, and it's like, yeah, it's just there. Like you said, you could talk about it all day. It's such a yeah. complex thing. Yeah. Or- organizations that are competing for top talent right now, you're going to miss out on the best and brightest in our field. If you're like, Oh, Hey, by the way, I, I recruited you and here's your job offer. or Here's your employment agreement. It's like, no, I'm not going to sign this non-compete. Like, I can, I can work elsewhere where I wouldn't have to do this. And so I think that not only are you, not only are you forcing people to stay that may not want to be there or, or whose values may not align with, with the organizational values that, that you've got in place or your mission or your vision, whatever it is, like they're just not a fit, right? So you're mm. keeping those people, but you're also preventing, you're, you're preventing yourself. You're hurting yourself. Um, in, mm-hmm. in, in regards to being able to recruit top talent and, and getting people working in your organization that would otherwise be fantastic, but you've mm-hmm. just got this restrictive agreement and, uh, and uh, it's, it's, it's hurting you. Um, the, the other thing I heard, I don't know if y'all saw this at all in, in your, uh, I, I don't remember reading uh, anything about this, but I've, I've recently learned that people are also being required to sign non-competes to get their raises. So like, and I don't even know how that works practically, but it's like, okay, so mm-hmm. you're going to, I'm going to give you your raise at the end of this year or whatever at your, 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 the time of your evaluation. But mm-hmm. in order to get this raise, now you have to sign a non-compete, which makes no sense to me. It's like, so why are they getting mm-hmm. the raise? Are they getting the raise because they 
their performance and the, the value mm-hmm. that they bring to the organization um, supports getting a raise or are you getting a raise because you're signing a non-compete? Like it's very confusing, right? Like think about what that communicates to the, to the performer. Yeah, exactly. it, it's, it's, yeah. a, it's, it's very muddy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. I know that like BHCOE's uh, accreditation, it mentioned specifically, I, I think that they're, if they're used, they should be used with administrators. And so like, if you like, sort of what you're saying, if it's clear why, you know, here's my rationale. Um, and like some of the questions Matt had suggested that we came up with in the article, you know, if someone asks you, or if you're an owner, you're going to be exposed to these kinds of practices, this and that, here's why this distance makes sense to us. But, you know, just as even I'm not talking about the appropriateness of that, I still don't necessarily think that's always appropriate, but just for significant, just raises, like you said, like, what is that? communicate, you know, generally, you know, if there was a time where it would be appropriate, I don't know that mixing it in with, um, you know, a a performance review, I mean, that kind of nullifies, you know, it, it, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, not, so I'm not, not a lawyer in case that that isn't already clear, but, but, you know, having, Mm -hmm. having worked on the, the, the identifying ethical organizations paper, I had consulted with a human resource lawyer and one of the things that they, you know, had, you know, spoke to me about was this idea of mutual benefit. And, and um, I, this is a very en- entry level, you know, analysis of it. But, you know, when you're signing a contract, there's there's this sort of mutual gain. You get something and then your employer gets something in return. And, and so by being asked to sign a non-compete and not having anything else coming in, you know, for you, you know, that you know, at best is, is bad HR practice. And, and I don't know if it's illegal or not, and maybe the state regulatory you know, jurisdiction, you know, would dictate that. And so I wonder if organizations are kind of looking at it and going, okay, well, this seems like a mutual benefit situation here where you get the raise and then you, we get this, this non-compete signature from you. But like you've said, it's a really misapplication of something that really should be uh, provided for good performance. <laughs> um, and it's it's yeah. it's uh, yeah. it's it's a weird way. You know, it's it's like it's like someone just sort of like butchering the, um, you know, you go into a classroom and someone's butchering the token economy and you're like, yeah, that's just not quite how that works. You know, good try. But that's yeah. that's not how that goes. Yeah. 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 No, I, I agree. Yeah, I can understand. I can understand it more, like you were saying, Chris. In those, uh, I think the BHUE says the executive level positions. Like, okay, that's if mm-hmm. if you want to justify it that way, sure. Uh, but but still, it, it it's hard to justify. It's hard to it's hard to argue um, in support of, uh, of of those practices. But um, yeah, the, the that was like that was like next level non compete to me when I when I when I realized mm-hmm. that they were holding the raise uh mm-hmm. captive it's like oh sign the non-compete and then you get your raise it's like from my perspective i'd be like hey th- this is literally what i would say if i were working in this setting i'd be like hey so i want to let you know that i could go on google right now and find mm-hmm. at least 25 organizations that are hiring bcbas so i suspect that it would be in your best interest to give me the raise based on my performance and how I and how I've contributed to the organization in the last year or six months or whatever. And you shouldn't make me sign this non-compete. Like I just I, I want PCBAs to know that they have a lot more power maybe than they realize they do. Like my, my thought is like, well, just go go elsewhere. 
right? Like you don't need to sign this. Like you could probably get a a job offer that matches or exceeds this one with your raise elsewhere where you're not going to be required to sign the non-compete. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's all, it's all negotiable. And you know, the contract is negotiable, whether or not it's enforceable is is another issue, but if it's in there, then, then you can have a conversation about it. You want to put in that you're going to get a, you know, a giant uh, elephant after four years of working there, then, you know, go for it. Um, you're probably not going to get very far, yeah. but, but, you know, I, mm-hmm. I, again, I don't, you mentioned that there's a lot of power right now that, that the, the BCPAs have mm-hmm. and, and, you know, not necessarily with salary negotiation, especially for younger um, or, or earlier in our career. Um, we should be careful about those expectations, but still get paid what you're worth. But you are in demand. Mm-hmm. And so you're in a position to negotiate. Whereas if there was one job and there were 100 of you applying, you know, unfortunately, the bargaining power of the worker, uh, it, you know, is much more, much weaker. Um, but, you know, these are things that you can ask about and negotiate even entry level BCBA positions. I encourage anybody because, again, I, you know, with with me, with working with my students, every time that we've had a non-compete and we've asked for it to be removed, it has been. And the employers sometimes they go, well, you want to ask that before? I don't know, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, we just wait and then it, then it comes out. And then, and then most of the time we're left there going, gosh, I'm glad we got that out because they were terrible. And I'm glad that you can actually go and work at a place that might be better than that versus being stuck there. Well, great. Anything else y'all want to talk about while we're together? I mean, like I said, there's a lot of stuff you could talk about with it. I mean, I guess the biggest point from this, these articles was to try to just get folks, certainly like you mentioned, it'd be great if maybe regulatory boards looked at some of this stuff or gave it some thought or gave some guidance, um, you know, on on what they can and can't do. Because something that I, I guess was in the previous article in this one that we didn't mention that much today. Cause I've talked to some folks at different levels of say organizations, um, you know, state, you know, um, groups and things like that. Um, really the other concern is that, you know, it does in a sense almost allow practice, especially if the owners are BCBAs, it's really allowing other practitioners to regulate some aspect of practice, usually not allowing folks to work or something like that is, is on the, uh, is on a board, a state board or the BACB or something. It in a way is allowing for this kind of regulate, like regulation of practice to occur. that really isn't accounted for, you know, and that, you know, business owners, like I said, who or companies who have, who are not practitioners, that is a separate conversation, but for practitioners, and that was where it kind of came in, like, would we ever be able to speak to or discuss with um, some of these regulation makers, policy makers? It's another aspect of it is it's really allowing certificates to regulate, tell when, where, or who you'll practice with. It's letting other practitioners do it. Like I said, only two states banned them, the BACB and APB. I don't think anyone's issued anything about them. Um, so really, in the vast majority of cases, you have these, I could just draft these up and tell the 15 BCBAs that I work with that you're not going to work in the state anymore. If you don't work here, that's it. And I have essentially yielded a power that in the past was reserved for the state board or the BACB. And there's nothing really anybody can do about it. 
Yeah, that seems like a like an excessive overreach of power for one organization. Mm. Yeah, it's definitely um, yeah interesting. Yeah, a lot like we talked about to think about, talk about, discuss. Yeah, it's definitely. I don't think in the way in which um, the non competes were developed. I, I don't know that necessarily um, the practice of medicine, psychology, behavior analysis. I don't know that that was initially the first place people thought about. Because if you look online for with, there's plenty of articles about them with physicians, medical practitioners, medical doctors, but nothing really. And um, other than these two things we did in our field. Yeah. Well, you know, um, if, oh, go ahead, Matt. I was just going to say, I mean, I mean, one thing in closing, I, I would say, um, you know, to anybody who gets a contract and they're not sure, uh, just, you know, pay a couple hours uh, for a lawyer's time and get it straightened out mm-hmm. and get your questions answered because it's, uh, it's much less expensive. You pay a couple hundred bucks, uh, you know, to get some input and, and, yeah. and learn about, you know, the, the legalese. Um, it is a lot cheaper than yeah. having to retain an attorney um, if something, um, you know, has to get litigated yeah. in, you know, c- civil or legal court. So, yeah, and definitely probably where you sign all the ones I've seen above it, it says, I agree that I've had a chance to have a lawyer look at this. I mean, that's there's no coincidence that that's on all of these these contracts. So I would definitely agree with yeah. that. Yeah. One, one thing we, uh, we found out recently, like at least here where I am in, in Boise, there's uh, like a free legal resource center. So for, for, for individuals who may not be able to afford an attorney, you can go and get free legal guidance and counsel, which is great. You just walk up and you probably wait, um, you know, however long you need to, and they'll take a look at your, your, uh, your agreements or whatever you need them to look at. So that's also a great resource. Uh, I don't know if they have those mm-hmm. in every community, but um, I imagine there's 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 a version of that uh, in many places. Well, great guys. Um, so uh, I'll I'll keep you posted on. I think that my goal for this episode will uh, is that it'll be posted in maybe two to four weeks. Um, we're gonna uh, we're gonna try. You know, we did this like mini series with a handful of people regarding kind of those uh, the ABAI controversies. Um, with electroshock. And so we did like five or six interviews. We're, we're waiting to do one more. Um, so we're going to finish that out. And then this will probably be like the first or second episode of like a new thing that we'll, we'll more regularly do things like this. Um, we got a really like positive response from the, the that mini series that we did. So we thought, okay, this would be like a, a good thing to continue. So we're going to do it a little differently, which is why it's going to take a little bit longer to kind of produce, if you will, this episode. But um, I'm excited uh, that that we did this. I think it's going to be a huge gift to to our community. Um, mm-hmm. So I appreciate you taking time to like chat through it with me. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thanks for having us. Yeah, yeah. yeah likewise, it's great, great talking. And and uh, again, you know, this is uh, this is Chris's brainchild, and so I'm really you know fortunate to have him along. And, and mm-hmm. Robbie, thanks for uh, you know giving it the platform. I mean, I really, I really. You know, when he sent this to me, I thought he had really had something special, and um, it's good to see that that play out in such a positive way. I think it really speaks to the you know the practical aims of of, of his questions and work, and and um, I appreciate you seeing seeing the value in that. Um, so it's great to be able to communicate it to yeah. an audience. Yeah, totally, totally. 